Hi, this is Cameron Strang from Relevant. The thing about media these days is everything is built around the soundbite, the clickable headline, the hot take on social media. Rarely do we take the time to go deeper about a topic, to thoughtfully consider viewpoints different from our own, or get to know someone's story in depth. To be honest, that's the challenge we wrestle with uh, in making engaging magazine content, podcasts, or daily articles on our website. How to make the content engaging, but substantive. No matter what we do, no matter how good the final article may be, there's always so much content left on the cutting room floor. So what would it look like if we brought our readers behind the curtain? What if we ran full, uncut interviews? No editorializing, no filter. Just hear it straight from the horse's mouth. That's the idea behind our new podcast, Relevant Plus Conversations. Each week, this new show offers uncut interviews with the voices you see featured in our magazine. The show is one of the subscriber exclusives that's part of Relevant Plus, our new premium digital content subscription plan. What you're about to hear is one of the episodes. If you like it and want more, subscribe to Relevant Plus. A new episode of Relevant Plus Conversations releases every week exclusively for our members. And there's a lot more that comes with a Relevant Plus subscription, an ad-free early release edition of the Relevant Podcast, a beautifully designed enhanced digital magazine, ad-free unlimited reading on relevantmagazine.com, and other subscriber exclusives throughout the year. Plans start at just $250 a month. You'll love it. But don't take our word for it. Here's a free sample. A recent episode of Relevant Plus Conversation with one of our favorite faith leaders, John Mark Comer. Enjoy. You're listening to Relevant Plus Conversations, the subscriber-exclusive podcast from Relevant Magazine. Lies are not just individual. There are kind of meta lies that live in the, the ethosphere of culture at large. Each week, we take you inside the room as you hear complete interviews with the artists, thinkers, leaders, and innovators at the intersection of faith and culture. When Jesus hones in and gives his teaching on the devil, the primary thing that he's dealing with is this idea of lies and deception and the way it plays to the human mind and imagination. Hey, this is Emily Brown. I'm the associate editor for Relevant, and you're listening to my conversation with John Mark Comer. We spoke about his latest book, Live No Lies, which examines the three enemies that are out to steal our peace and how to not only recognize, but also resist them. It's a really fascinating dive into a honestly very complex idea, uh, but John explains it all in a way that I really only think he can. Uh, you know, when I, he and I spoke, uh, I had him unpack just a few of the ideas that he touches on, and it was really incredible to see how far his knowledge of this entire subject goes. Um, you know, this is not just a topic that he's glossed over. He really understands it, and it made our conversation so rich and easy to carry on because there's just so much there. Um, I really enjoyed getting to talk with him because, you know, he's really just a true scholar of this theological idea, and I think there's so much in our conversation that can impact everyone's daily life. So I'm excited for everyone to hear my full conversation with John Mark Comer. I'm really excited about your book, um, which is really, you know, what we're here to talk about. It's called Live No Lies, which is um, just a great topic for this time. Uh, So I'd like to know, you know, where did this book originate from? Like what, how did you get started with this? You know, I mean, I grew up born and raised kind of on the West Coast. So grew up in Bay Area 
and then moved to Portland. So I've spent my whole life in just a very secular, very progressive, very post-Christian kind of culture. And yet um, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so trying to figure out like how to make sense of the world, how to navigate uh, a world that is, you know, so far from Jesus' vision of human flourishing and, uh, and kind of hold to not just Christian orthodoxy, but to Jesus. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of born out of that pain. And then the pastoral call of how do you pastor people? How do you shepherd people in a city that's just the, the, the atmosphere here, the, the soil of the city at a cultural level is so corrosive to any kind of faith, you know, or discipleship to Jesus. And um, a, a key thing for me was kind of recapturing a, you know, so many Christians are, are basically secular in how they think about spirituality and Christianity, you know, quickly devolves to like a Christian version of Buddhism, kind of like a spiritual, how do you become a nice person and achieve inner peace, which is all great. I'm actually into a lot of that stuff. But um, we, we forget that this is a clash of kingdoms that we're part of in the teachings of Jesus, that the kingdom of God motif that is literally the central message of Jesus of Nazareth is at some level like a warfare motif. And it's not a warfare with another tribe or tongue or nation. It's the opposite of that. But there are spiritual realities behind this kind of material culture that we live in. And so I was just captivated by the very ancient paradigm that goes back to, to the New Testament, but the specific language to the desert fathers and mothers in North Africa in the fourth century of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and realizing that secularism isn't the entity, a, a, enemy, you know, progressivism in my city or, you know, uh, conservatism in other cities or cultural contexts, that's actually not the enemy. People are not the enemy. There's an enemy behind the enemy, or there's multiple of them, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So just trying to like highlight that reality for my own personal life and for my pastoral life to help us figure out how to navigate and kind of flourish in this kind of a climate. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely see that. I think a lot of people, it's easier to say that it's people that are the enemy and not these like un, unseen spiritual things yes. that are really affecting it. And that's the great tragedy is like we, we scoff at the idea of, for example, the devil is those, such a thoroughly, we would like to think, unmodern idea. What we really mean is non-secular idea. And, uh, but yet what happens when we, when we ignore demons is we end up demonizing people or, an entire, or entire groups of people just because of whatever political identity they hold or racial identity they hold or uh, national identity they hold. So it's even, it makes a bad problem worse, you know, and then we end up trying to fix all the, the problems of society without dealing with the root cause at some level. And that just, it just doesn't work. It's a bandaid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I, I grew up in the church too, and, you know, I had heard about the devil, but I think even growing up, it was never really, the idea of the devil was never really fleshed out well. Um, and I think that has caused a lot of issues too, is we use terms like the devil, the flesh and the world. Um, but we don't really know, like in scripture, we don't really kind of understand the context of what that is. So could you maybe explain a little bit more about each of the enemies and maybe an example of how they lie to us in different ways? Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's hours of conversation there. So <laughs> that's, let's keep it, let's keep it very succinct. You know, yeah. when we, when we think about the devil and, and, you know, you could sketch out, it would take a while to sketch out a biblical theology of this creature that 
you know, in Genesis 1, 1 is arguably the kind of chaos monster on the, on the waters, the darkness over the waters, and then this serpent creature. And then by the time it's fully developed in the New Testament is this adversary to Jesus himself out in the wilderness. But however you grasp and understand who this creature is and where he comes from and where he is going, uh, what I kind of hone in on the book in, in on the book is that in Jesus, most kind of in-depth teaching on this creature and on his strategy against our soul and our society, which is in John chapter eight, there's that fascinating line where Jesus calls him the father of lies, uh, has this really interesting line. When he lies, he speaks his native language, ties it all back to the Garden of Eden story and the serpent and Adam and Eve and this story of deception that's at the root of kind of the human fall. And that's basically what Jesus has to say. And I, that struck me as, wow, uh, when Jesus gives an in-depth teaching on the devil, he doesn't talk about all the things I would expect him to talk about. Demonization, natural disasters like a tsunami or cancer or illness or disease or a poltergeist or a terrifying nightmare, you know, for a, a little kid. Um, not that that stuff's not real. There's actually evidence for all of that stuff in the New Testament and thoroughly down through church history and in a lot of our own personal experience. But when Jesus hones in and gives his teaching on the devil, the primary thing that he's dealing with is this idea of lies and deception and the way it plays to the human mind and imagination. And if you think about Matthew chapter four, or Luke chapter four, this, which are the two stories of Jesus kind of going toe to toe with the devil in the wilderness, what are those stories? It's not like Jesus and Zeus, you know, battling it out with swords up in the heavenlies, like some, you know, Marvel movie or whatever. It's uh, a quiet kind of conversation where the devil is basically lying to Jesus with these very subtle uh, kind of indirect deceitful ideas that he's implanting in Jesus' mind. And the Desert Fathers and Mothers, in particular, Evagrius, Aponticus, and a few other just brilliant minds from the ancient church, they interpreted that story as like a very key, a paradigmatic story. Like this is the paradigm for what we today would call spiritual warfare, which is a, a goofy kind of phrase that has lots of weird connotations to it. But they interpreted that as the paradigmatic story. And they said, whatever our fight with the devil is, it's primarily a fight in our mind and imagination to believe truth over lies. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. He was simultaneously saying that we're in bondage to lies. So they would see the primary kind of conflict with spiritual realities as the narratives that play in our mind, what, they, what the ancients called the logosmoi, or these kind of thoughts or thought patterns or internal narratives and belief structures, these kind of repeating thoughts that come to us over and over again. And that might sound a little crazy to think like, oh, that thought's a demon coming to me. But then if you actually think about it, a lot of us feel assaulted by our thought life. And we feel like some of the darker thoughts that play in our mind that are more accusatory or shame-based or fear-based or that stoke anger in us or pride or rage or alienation from God. Often these thoughts, it's, it's almost like at an experience, experiential level, like we feel like they have a will to them, like a malignant will. Like they're, they want to be thought by our brain and they want to kind of colonize and take over and root themselves in our imagination. And they want to become what we think about all the time. And they want to kind of like drive our heart 
down. And, you know, one explanation of that would just be a purely materialistic neurobiology. This is neuroplasticity and your things stick together. It's evolutionary biology. You know, your brain's scanning the horizon for, you know, a predator on the savanna or whatever. But I just don't think that explanation goes far enough. Not that it's wrong. I just don't think it goes far enough. So the ancients would say, no, these thoughts can be often demonically animated. There's like given this energy and they're after you. And the way that you fight back is you redirect your thought life, which is what Jesus is doing by quoting scripture. It's not that scripture is a magic incantation. It's not that that was a Bible per se, study per se. It's that Jesus is refusing to dialogue with the devil. He's refusing to get sucked into an internal thought narrative. He's just instead redirecting his thoughts from lies to truth. And this is core to our discipleship to Jesus, is learning to, to identify the lies that we become enslaved by that are driving our mind and through that our whole life into ruin and that of our society into ruin and learning to replace those lies with truth and then constantly kind of redirecting our mind when those lies reappear and reappear and reappear, learning to redirect our mind to truth. So that's kind of my basic angle on the devil. That's not holistic. That's not all the things there is to talk about. That's just kind of the approach that I take in the book. Um, I think that's, I think that's really good because um, yeah, I think there's so many, there's so many kind of different versions of the devil out there. And I think because of the way that the church in particular has maybe let society influence how we view the devil um, and the flesh in the world that kind of, that skews our view. And I think that's a way that the devil definitely uses those lies to just furthermore lies about himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I definitely, I feel like I've noticed that. And you, it's interesting. You said something, um, that I think is really important because this is really a two part process. You have to both recognize the lies and then also replace them with truth. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, I think a lot of times people think, Oh, well, I recognize the lie and that's it, but it, it does go a step further. So yes. what are some ways that people can just practically resist these lies? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the, 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 the most common example in the stream of the church that I grew up in is the daily reading of scripture. And that is, you know, most likely your first step toward that. But the question becomes, how do we not just read scripture, but think it? Meaning, how does it become the default narrative that we live by, how does it begin to take over in a good way, our mind and our imagination? And so one solution to that is scripture memorization, which is really interesting. Um, that's been kind of lost in our generation and used to be very key to discipleship to Jesus, especially before Gutenberg and the printing press, when you couldn't like wake up in the morning and read your Bible or have the version app. You had to basically <laughs> memorize the Bible in order to draw it to your mind. But um, I mentioned Evagrius of Ponticus, who was this kind of Turkish intellectual who moved to North Africa as a monk. And he wrote this extraordinary book that uh, is called Talking Back. And this is a, fa that's a famous Greek word that the desert fathers and mothers use that they, they said that's what Jesus was doing in the desert. He was talking back to Satan. So they called it Talking Back or another way to translate the Greek there is counter talking. It was counter talking. So it's like you have this talking in your brain, these lies and false narratives that just talk to you constantly, talk at you. Counter talking is like talking back with the truth of Jesus. Subtitle it is to his book, Talking Back, was A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons, which is basically the best subtitle of all time. <laughs> 
And uh, I thought, you know, this is a fun fact about books. Uh, books, book titles and subtitles are not copyrighted. I don't even understand why. So I thought about, man, could, could, I, could I give that subtitle to my book, Live No Lies, a monastic handbook for combating demons. But I thought that might not exactly <laughs> encourage people <laughs> to pick it up and give it a, a read or a serious consideration. But in this uh, book, which is brilliant, you can get it online. It's not really a book. There's like a four-page intro that's utterly genius. He's articulating in the 300s what the leading neuroscientists of our day are just starting to articulate about kind of pre-verbal thought and the, you know, the role between emotion and thought. Just brilliant stuff. He's articulating that just through his experience of prayer. And then... Um, he has this, it's basically a handbook where he goes through and he identifies all of the lies that come to his mind and imagination, which are contextualized to his personality and his life as a monk in the North African wilderness and, you know, 350 or whatever it is. But then for each one of those lies, which he says against the thought of, he has a corresponding scripture that is the opposite truth. And it was this handbook that he literally memorized so that every time that thought came to mind, he would immediately pull up from memory a scripture and he would refuse to dialogue with the thought and he would instead turn his mind, redirect his thought life to the corresponding scripture that was the truth over the lie. And so, um, you know, this, his, his book, by the way, Talking Back, has eight chapters based on eight kind of thought groupings like, you know, pride or thoughts of pride, thoughts of fear, which is where we actually get the seven deadly sins from of antiquity. That's because mm -hmm. later they kind of collapsed. They had a chapter on pride and a chapter on vainglory. And those were close enough that people kind of collapsed them. And this is his work is where we get the idea of the seven deadly sins, which is a very ancient kind of Christian paradigm. And uh, so anyway, you can do this. Like I actually have a little thing in the back of my book. I've started my own. It won't, we'll never see publication, but just for my own personal life is basically taking some time to sit with my thoughts. And this is where prayer, solitude, journaling, therapy are so incredibly helpful. Sit with my thoughts and see if I can identify what thoughts are not just thoughts, but are actually lies that quite possibly, I don't know, but quite possibly have some kind of even demonic animation or energy behind them trying to take over my mind and my thought life and through that my heart as a whole. And then wait on the spirit of God for him just to bring a scripture to mind that would be a corresponding truth. So I've literally written this out and I'll go over it on a regular basis and just an attempt to curate my consciousness, which I think is a key facet of following Jesus. I love that. I'm definitely gonna have to check out that book because that sounds very interesting. Um, and it's a great title. I would have bought your book if it was, if it had that subtitle. A monastic so handbook work. for combating yes. demons. Dang it. I should have yeah. done it. <laughs> you can do a re-release in a little while. Um, That's it. That. That's it. Um, the 10th anniversary edition or something like that. <laughs> yes. I think it, it would be perfect. Well, you know, I think it's really important as individuals that we recognize um, the lies that we hear and address those. But I do think... Um, and this has happened throughout the course of history, but the church sometimes buys into lies and um, buys into these tricks that, you know, the devil, the flesh, the world say about us. So what are ways that the church as a whole can maybe push back against these lies? Yeah, well, first up, I would just agree that lies are not just individual. Lies are communal and even generational. And so there are kind of meta lies that live in the, the ethosphere of culture at large. 
and they could be and 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 they're just basically assumptions about reality that are not actually true. So let's take a not super emotionally loaded one. Like most people would not say this, but they actually believe that more money equals more happiness. That's a very mm-hmm. like popular lie in our kind of Western materialistic, you know, middle class and up kind of world. More money equals more happiness. Now, that's that's not really true. I mean, there's enough truth in there to to give it a fair hearing, but it's not actually true. But that's a very common one. Um, Then to push a little bit deeper into emotionally loaded territory, you know, one of, I think, the defining lies of Western culture since Freud is that uh, fulfilling my sexual desire is necessary to live a happy life. That is an assumption about reality that is deeply woven into the fabric of America and Western society. So um, I think the church actually has a key role here. This is where the, the actual role of the gathered church, I think in particular the role of scripture and of preaching. And uh, a lot of people think preaching is dead in the age of TikTok and all the things. I could not disagree more. I think it's actually more important now than it's been in a long time. What the reading of scripture and what good preaching and teaching does is it lovingly exposes the lies that we receive all of the time, both from inside us in our own heart and outside of us in the culture wars between left and right and in our, our society as a whole, and lovingly replaces them with truth from scripture. And so this is where us kind of coming back, whether you're in a, a house church or a mega church or anything in between, whether it's high church Anglican or low church Anabaptist, whatever you're, whether that's charismatic or, you know, uh, or quite stayed, whatever your church is like, a key part of that role is the is this spiritual discipline, this, this habit, this holy habit of coming together on a regular basis to recenter around the truth that Jesus is Lord and to let the, the assault, kind of the programming that we receive all week long of culture be mitigate, mitigated against by the truth of scripture and the preaching of the gospel. Yeah, I love that you say that the lies are not just individual, that they are communal, because I think um, you know, sometimes one of the hard things is when you finally recognize a lie, but other people don't. Um, and I think that can be hard to like fight for that truth when you feel yes. like you're the only one that can see that. Well, I mean, think about all the conspiracy theories right now, you know, from QAnon and stuff on the right to all sorts of other theories on the left that are kind of, I think the left's version of conspiracy theories, but they're ripping our nation apart. Because if you don't have, you know, Obama had that great line when he was on Letterman a while ago. Uh, You know, he said, one of the great problems we face in our democracy is the degree to which we do not have a common baseline of facts. And if you can't agree on what reality is, then your nation is doomed. And I don't mean that like in a fear mongering way. I just mean that in, I think our morning news feed is living proof of the fact that lies live in culture at large. And when they are given free reign, they fragment and fracture. It's the chaos monster of Genesis 1 let loose through the digital airwaves. They, and he's still doing the exact same thing, bringing chaos and discord and violence and hate and disunity to a world where Jesus is at work to do the exact opposite, create communities of shalom. One of the things that you kind of mentioned that I want to go back to is 
sometimes the lies, they feel like there's an, like an air of truth to them. Um, like even what you, you know, obviously I know, you know, money does not bring happiness. Um, I mean, money to an extent helps, but it does not bring pure happiness. So there's things like that, you know, how do you identify a lie that there is some truth in it, but there's not full truth? That makes yeah, sense. I mean, I, it's hard in our dogmatic kind of polarized right versus left, us versus them kind of anti-reason cultural moment that we're in. But um, I, I think you're absolutely right. That is the challenge of our time. And most good lies are mostly true. And if you think about, you know, a lot of cults that, you know, came to prominence over the last century or so, they're basically 95% in agreement with Christian Orthodox doctrine. But the 5% where they're off is like, you know, core. (laughs) It's like the nature of who Jesus is or the resurrection of the dead or, you know, Mm -hmm. the 5% where they're in error is like the linchpin, you know? And um, this is the great danger of ideology. And there are ideologies on the left that I would be incredibly familiar with just by virtue of living in Portland. And then there are ideologies on the right that other people, depending on where you live or what your digital algorithm is, you'd be more familiar with. But ideology, the best definition I know of ideology is when you take a part of the truth and you make it the whole. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, communism would be a great example where you take something that's true, this idea of class struggle and oppressed and oppressor and kind of the struggle between the elites of society and, you know, the proletariat. But, But that, if you just take that as the whole truth and then overlay that over an entire nation's history and reality, at that point, it's no longer true. It's, it's because life is way more complex than that and uh, a thousand times more complex than that. And so it's not that it's not true that, you know, there are oppressed and oppressor and there's class struggle. It's that when you make that the whole truth, you now are in a, into a lie. And, you know, that's a meta example where we can look at because out of that came the greatest genocide in human history, arguably a hundred million slaughtered. It's really interesting that Americans talk more about the Holocaust than they do about the communist genocide, even though, you know, arguably it was more than 10 times as many people were slaughtered. But because communism slaughtered people in the name of a classless society of equality and justice, and Nazi Germany slaughtered people in the name of racism, uh, communism gets a, 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 an un, un, <laughs> too fair of a hearing, if that makes sense. So we don't have the horror around it that we do around the Nazis because of our society's value for equality and justice, which is largely a testament to our Christian past. Um, So all that to say, that's a great salient example at a meta level. But I think when we're in just interpersonal stuff or our own life, it's just always looking for that 5% that's off or looking for the yeah, but, or the yeah, and, or where has this critique or this idea or this value become an ideology? It's become not part of the truth, but the whole truth. And as a result, become untrue. You know, in your book, you talk about how acknowledging these, or resisting and acknowledging these lies lead to peace. Um, So I would just like to hear, you know, since you've started um, identifying and resisting the lies in this way, how has your life changed? Like, how has that affected your life by, by changing your thought life? 
Yeah, well, let's take it out of an individual kind of frame, which is all of our default setting as Westerners, and put it back into a Jesus, kingdom of God, four gospels frame. You know, there's these two, there's this kind of clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of God and what the writer Paul in the New Testament calls the kingdom of darkness. And the reign of God, which is arguably a better translation of the kingdom, the reign of God, the rule of God is a reign of peace. And the reign of, you know, the reign of darkness, the kingdom of darkness is one of chaos and fear and violence and anger and division and disunity. And so the more that we can bring our mind and through that our whole body, our sexuality, our gender, our money, our interpersonal relationships, our speech, um, our dress, all that we are, the more that we can bring that under the reign of Jesus through our voluntary act of discipleship to him and, and what you know, Paul in Romans 12 calls true and proper worship, um, the more we experience his peace. And the more out of sync we are with the reign of Jesus and more under the reign of darkness or our own kind of reign, the more chaotic and non-integrated we are. And so whenever I'm feeling like a lack of peace in my own body, now some of that's just, hey, life in a fallen world, you know, and life in a body that has sin still in it and is surrounded by a world of danger. So some of that's just human. But whenever I'm feeling that in my body, it's usually a sign that I'm, I'm not living in the right kingdom, that my heart has strings that are attached to the other kingdom. And so I just think of Paul's line, you know, in Romans, I think chapter eight, the mind governed by the spirit, governed, it's kingdom language, ruled, reigned by the spirit is life and peace. But the mind governed by the flesh is death. And so, so much of this has to do with our mind, with our consciousness, with our thought life and our emotional life and that the kind of act of our will, this, this center part that the New Testament calls our heart. Um, are we bringing our mind under the governance, under the rule and the reign of Jesus daily through an act of discipleship? To the degree that we do that is the t- degree to which, not perfectly because of the world we live in and the body we still call home, but is the degree to which we experience this sense of peace, not just this like absence of fear, but this deep integration and deep kind of grounding in God himself and our identity in God. That was a free preview of our new podcast, Relevant Plus Conversations. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want more and you want to sign up and want to get this every week, you can find out all the info about subscribing to Relevant Plus at relevantmagazine.com. Like I mentioned earlier, plans start at just $250 a month. Relevant Podcast Network.